This evening's talk is about wise concentration. And we'll begin our discussion this evening with three Pali words. Sila, Samadhi, Panya. Pali words that translate into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom, or insight, form the three branches of mental development that are essential to all forms, to all schools of Buddhist teaching and practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or these capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights, that of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena, dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all mental and physical phenomena, worldly mental and physical phenomena, and anatta, the impersonality, we could say, of all of the mental and material phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one into the final liberating wisdom. And I think, as each of you know, concentration plays quite an important role in the Buddhist teaching. It's one of the seven factors of awakening. And those are mindfulness, investigation, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of the uh, what are called the five controlling faculties or the five spiritual powers. And those are faith and effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. The Buddha made a comment at one point that the practice of insight, the vipassana practice, without the support of samatha, without the support of concentration, is like sending a minister out to negotiate with bandits without the protection of a bodyguard. So it's pretty important. In the Buddha's words, as he often did, 
He starts with the question, and then he goes on to answer his own question. So this is from, uh, from him. If concentration, samatha, is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds to his own question. The mind is developed. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? All greed is abandoned. And then he asks, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? Wisdom is developed. And he says again, if wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? All ignorance is abandoned, he says. So concentration and samatha, meditation and vipassana, insight, meditation, in particular alternating sequences are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, through our exploration of virtue, ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of virtue deepen and mature within us, we come to understand through our own very direct experience what brings happiness and contentment and ease on deeper and more profound levels and what brings suffering, confusion, dis-ease to us. Ethical behavior or ethical discipline is the basis for developing samatha the basis for developing concentration. The Sanskrit term term samadhi and the Pali term samatha refer not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of exceptional mental health and balance. Intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila, the practice of ethical uh, discipline and behavior affords us is the recognition of seeing our self-identification in relationship to our various long-standing habits of attraction, which show up as greed, clinging, expectation, and attachment, and our long-standing habits of aversion, which show up as worry, resistance, anger, fear, confusion, and doubt. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we could call rebirth over and over again in this very here and now 
momentary round of worldly suffering. And the Pali word for this is samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration, or samadhi, or samatha. And these habits of mind are what keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and thus keep us from awakening, keep us from liberation. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, trees, galaxies, New Mexico, California, Boston, Antarctica, Afghanistan, dogs, thoughts, rain, snow, New York, feelings, hair, one's aging body, sunshine, the White House, your favorite restaurant, Delta Airlines, etc., 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 are all understood, all regarded as being without substantial sustaining essence, meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, graspable self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, We need to purify the mental cloudiness. We need to part the veil and untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs through the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, all of which are rooted in mindfulness. The Buddha, in speaking with one of his disciples, Ananda, in the Kimata Sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya, Ananda asks the Buddha a question. And uh, the Buddha responds. This is their conversation. Ananda says, What's the purpose of skillful virtues? What's their reward? And the Buddha responds, Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda. And freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, 
as its purpose, knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arhanship, to the consummation of liberation from suffering. And in speaking with his monks and his nuns directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn from directly from our own experience. And often from some of our more difficult experiences, and sometimes also from what we may deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtle experiences. We could say that purification of the mind and the heart is synonymous with this act of learning. And so, this evening, taking a look at the active force of samatha, the active force of samadhi, concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, of gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of Concentration is that of reining the mind in from all of its myriad distractions and then learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present so that all of our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. And one important aspect of this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind, rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over again by whatever breezes waft in into it from maybe any of the sense doors or maybe from its own unconscious. So in this light we can ask ourselves the question, does your mind control you or do you control the mind? So for instance, 
If your intention is to keep your attention on the breath, but the mind just wanders off at the slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. One of the wonderful things that practice offers us is that remaining focused on a chosen object is a skill that can be learned like any other skill by practice, patient repetition, and gradual development. The Vesudhimagga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a number of very graphic metaphors uh, to describe this process of the development and the act of concentration. And one of these metaphors that I came across that I particularly relate to is because of my own experience in creating pottery on a potter's wheel. And this is that uh, metaphor from the Vasudhimaga. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and relaxed focus of attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter with a continued focus of clear, connected and relaxed attention with one hand directly on the clay steadily holding and supporting the clay the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay which continues to be the object of attention the other hand is moving back and forth up and down informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. So even if you've never tried working on a potter's wheel yourself, this is such a visceral and uh, clear description. And you've probably maybe watched or seen someone else trying to do this. So hopefully it has some... uh, meaning for you. Quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and the process of concentration. With the mind, the heart, learning to move in a very focused experience of a deepening concentration. The power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind, a concentrated mind, brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again. It re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. So we could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself 
strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, clear, and calm. Which is quite an energizing, refreshing, and potentially beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha concentration, I think uh, it would be it's helpful to uh, for us to explore and learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. And a quote from Alan Wallace, who is a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. Like a telescope launched into orbit beyond the distortions of the Earth's atmosphere, Samatha meditation provides a platform for exploring the deep space of the mind. The wholesome states that accompany the development of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, contentment, peace, and equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, none of these can grow when the unwholesome states of mind of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the developing or the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, maybe such as the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath at the nostrils or the the Anapanaspat or maybe the rising and the falling movement of the breath and the belly and you're anxious and worried or filled with expectation during the process. Calm and joy will be prevented from arising. Why is this? Because worry and expectation enslave us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, meaning not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to cut through thoughts, so to say, even thoughts that might seem really so important in the moment. And it's, it's really, I think, very important here to note that it isn't about kicking out thought. It's not about booting out thought. Kicking out thought, booting out thought, is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. Not being seduced by thought, letting thoughts 
come and go as they naturally do is not rooted in aversion. So what's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention. Seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled or lost in something other than what's intended. This is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. Because our mind can get lost in myriad, mundane, and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions. Thinking whatever it is, is really, really important right now. I had such an experience uh, during a three-month retreat uh, that was devoted to the development of concentration uh, and jhana that I sat with Palak Sayadaw uh, a number of years ago. The first week, uh, a week or so, maybe it may have been a little bit longer than a week, but uh, of this particular retreat, each day after lunch, I would make myself a fancy cup of tea. And by that I mean I would take two or three different loose teas and mix them together in a tea ball and for my pleasure. And it seemed like it was really important and, and seemed like it was necessary that I, something that I really needed, certainly something that I really wanted. Towards the end of that week, as I was mixing my tea for the tea ball, for my treat, I noticed a box of tea bags uh, sitting on the counter that was one of the same teas that um, I was putting into my fancy mix. And of course it had been sitting there all along, but uh, the mind hadn't connected with it until uh, that very moment. And so when I saw it, the thought came, hmm, do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is this really is this really important? Well, quickly the answer came, no, no, it's not really important. It's merely a habitual distraction. So, from that day forward, I just made a simple cup of tea with the tea bag and drank it and enjoyed it. It was enough, good enough. But what happened after this was what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the rest of this three-month retreat, the question would come up, is this really important? And it would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and thought patterns. And the answer would almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time after a while, quite clearly and more and more obviously be no. And I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. I mean, this wasn't instant. It took a while for this to evolve in this way. But it was very helpful. So again, the development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have 
some insight of depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration and mindfulness is that the mind and heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed and aversion and lethargy and restlessness and doubt. These experiences that are classically called hindrances in the Buddha's teachings. Classically, the development of concentration, and for some people at some point jhana, is described as the purification of the mind. And again, as the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm and concentration, seriously weakens all of the hindrances, these unwholesome states of mind. In the moments when calm, joy, tranquility, blissful happiness or contentment as it's sometimes called, peace and equanimity, these fruits of concentration practice, when they, when they clearly manifest, unwholesome states of mind are temporarily completely eliminated, as well as considerably weakened over the long term particularly if one's concentration develops and deepens. And then even more so, specifically so, if one's mind inclines towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of a growing and deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that can hinder the development of concentration and also very much hinder the blossoming of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed. I mean, obviously so. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles and give the mind a greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, applying the attention, aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object. The word for this in Pali is vitaka and then eventually establishing the mind, establishing the attention on the object, which might be the rising and falling of the breath in the belly, sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils, the anapana spot, or maybe the breath in and through the whole body. This eventually, temporarily, when it becomes active and in place, this eventually 
temporarily eliminates dullness and sleepiness and stiffness. And this can also be uh, uh, worked through metta practice, so applying the attention to the object of a metta phrase. The sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustaining attention on the object, again, as such as the breath, could be a metaphrase. This is called vichara in Pali. And this eventually, once it's actively in place, this eventually temporarily eliminates uncertainty and doubt within the practice. And it weakens these afflictive states of mind to some degree overall. The deeply concentrated and mindful states of of joyful zest or bright a kind of bright happiness and an elation in the mind resulting in the developing focus and purity of of the mind and heart and this is the pali word for this is piti this brings a very delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention again might be the breath And with the development and a a deepening concentration, which results in varying degrees of PT, ill will is temporarily eliminated. And often at the beginning of the manifestation of PT, it's felt or experienced as physical sensations in the body, such as vibration or maybe tingling. if one moves into a deeper development of concentration into maybe the jhana states, the first and second jhana states, with a deeply absorbed concentration, there's very much uh, uh, the light and liking of the object of attention, which is one aspect of the direct experience of jhana itself. And at that point, the object of attention is not breath anymore. It's the jhana itself. And at this point all forms of ill will are temporarily inhibited. As we continue with this process of the development of the mind through the practice and the development of concentration, the concentrated state of bliss or contentment or a very sweet, easeful happiness, and the Pali word for this is sukha, which in its maturity is not a pleasant bodily feeling, although it starts off that way, but in its maturity it's not a pleasant bodily feeling, but a blissful, contented mental experience. And when this occurs to varying degrees through deepening concentration, and then certainly much more profoundly in the third jhana, restlessness and agitation and regret and worry are eventually completely temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady and undistracted attention of a one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration, ikagata in Pali is the word, 
with this occurring, definitely occurring to varying degrees during the developmental stages of concentration and mindfulness. So it's occurring in all of you as you're practicing, whatever you're practicing. I mean, one of these practices, not whatever you're practicing. Your wholesome practices. (laughs) And it's occurring to varying degrees in all of us, in all of you. And then uh, it happens to a much more profound and sustaining degree during absorption in the fourth jhana. And this one-pointed focus of attention is the experience, just briefly, the experience of a clear, strong, and pervasive energy of centeredness and balance. It's equanimity. And during this time, Sensuous desire for anything is temporarily at bay. As samatha concentration develops and moves along, the states that corrupt the natural purity and luminosity of the mind and the heart when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, which also includes clinging and self-identification to pleasant experience, and which can also include many other uh, habitual states of mind, which can include uh, various uh, aspects of aversion, such as worry and fear, when at least some of this has been very clearly let go, temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished. At that time, one really, truly knows and gains a much fuller and much deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience a great inspiration and enthusiasm and appreciation connected to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Buddha's teachings, and to the Sangha, and to one's own particular teacher if one has a specific teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and the taste of a wholesome elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. And with this joy and the knowing of it, and very important, without any attachment and without any personal identification in those moments, the body and the mind eventually become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the 
subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy. Those are removed. They disappear in the calm and the quiet. They disappear in the serene pleasure of tranquility. And when we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. And when this pleasure is felt, again, really important, without any attachment and without any identification, self-identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course, the whole process must be accompanied by a connected, non-analytical, sustained, sustaining, mindful presence. So another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. And this brings the serene pleasure of tranquility which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. And so, in this light, the skill that's being developed is one's ability to resist or deflect, we could say, the influence of raga. Raga, the Pali word that's literally translated as unwholesome passion and is used synonymously often with greed and unwholesome desire and craving, attachment, and clinging, which is all of which are the core cause of our human suffering. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used uh, regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in the ability to deflect its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. With the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or an unwholesome emotion that has arisen and will be aware of the provocative sense or will be aware of a provocative sense input but will allow these to roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or drench the mind with aversion. A similar image often used was uh, that of water rolling off a lotus leaf or water rolling off the feathers of a duck. The nature of concentration is threefold. Or in other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that can develop and that also serve, can serve our insight practice. And the first of these is what's called kanaka samadhi in Pali. And this is translated as momentary concentration. 
this is the development and the growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another object after another object after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, another one, another one, another one, another one, ongoing, moment by moment by moment. And the cultivation of our capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. It's essential for vipassana practice. The second level or second type of concentration is called upachara samadhi or access concentration or another way that it's translated is neighborhood concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or moves into jhana concentration. And it can be reaccessed and used for insight practice coming when one comes out of uh, absorption. Neighborhood concentration, which I, I like that term, neighborhood concentration or access concentration is often experienced uh, as similar in the intensity and the depth of, of absorption or jhana concentration, but it is not an absorbed concentration. And that means it does not stay focused on one object at the exclusion of all other objects, as does jhana. With neighborhood concentration or access concentration, the mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object. So from this perspective, access concentration can be very helpful and very useful in the unfolding of vipassana practice or insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. And when the mind is absorbed in this way, it's really not possible during that, those moments for the mind to do anything else at that time. With the attainment of each of the first four jhanas, the mind is temporarily, totally purified of specific unwholesome mind states in relationship to each of the jhanas, as I've just uh, slightly uh, gone into with my explanation a little bit earlier in the talk. (coughs) While at the same time, unwholesome states of mind, they are considerably weakened in the long run in the process. Though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It is only through insight practice, it is only through vipassana practice that unwholesome or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally take place. It does quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice, in our insight practice. Particularly the momentary kanaka samadhi, momentary concentration. Especially when we begin to be able to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less attachment, and less identification 
but rather with an interested, open-hearted, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and excess concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that is not everyone's inclination or interest. And it's not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating vipassana practice to unfold. The achievement of jhana concentration may require many months or even many years of a single-pointed practice, meditating for many, many hours each day. And this certainly may be impractical for some people. (coughs) For others, it may be possible and may be worthwhile in moving towards the discoveries that lie in wait for us when we apply the telescope of samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. (coughs) As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of what's taking place with, and this is important, with no pondering, no commentary, no thinking about what's occurring, and not making something out of experience. Not making something out of experience. But rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. So in light of this, I'd like to um, share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme austere practices and finding that in fact they, they, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it said that the Bodhisatta Siddhartha Gautama asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? So in reflection with this inner questioning, an image, uh, the memory really, of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. And he remembered a particular spring day from when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when all of the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, six-year-old Siddhartha, quite spontaneously and naturally sat up in the meditation posture quite comfortably, 
and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree. Observing the scene that was unfolding before him with a very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting and not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows. Noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves. And he heard the cowbells rolling on and on amidst the strong sharp shouts of the men as they worked. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of bird song, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs and worms and broken bodies of the mice that were left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring and devouring and struggling, suffering and dying, endlessly going on and beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the tree, open-heartedly experiencing this scene unfolding before him, and in his mind and heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add and nothing to take away. As he silently sat quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states of mind, taking this all in without prejudice and without any attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration. And it's said to have been the first jhana, through mindfulness of breathing experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure and a joyful happiness that wasn't born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha, could that be the path to enlightenment? 
And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the Bodhisattva became filled with an energy and a sureness that this was, in fact, a footstep on the path. A footstep on the path to liberation. And he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was actually a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning, his quest for liberation, in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified and banished and released or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them or maybe trying to live through them by stealing oneself, by hardening oneself and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or by struggling, by really trying hard to let go of the painful states of mind related to extreme austere practices or maybe by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, in tiny ways maybe, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in various mental fantasies, particular situations, activities, spiritual practices, various relationships that created hardship and maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life and maybe even sometimes extreme hardship or extreme austerity. So in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did that these situations and fantasies and activities and practices and relationships would somehow bring a sustaining joy, (coughs) happiness and ease into your life. Potentially, a certain degree of mental strength might be acquired, of course. But the light at the end of the tunnel, the light of liberation, can't be seen, felt, or known 
with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities. That this would actually never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally with a mind, a heart that's secluded, free from mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy and restlessness and greed, clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion and confusion and doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated, and mindful presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed and clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That it in fact points to the sustaining happiness and the ease of a heart, of a mind, that's liberated, that's awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, The Bodhisattva Siddhartha came to understand that the development of a deep concentration, and for him, jhana, is a footstep on the path to awakening. An important and useful useful footstep on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed it in the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, in a discourse to his student Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on uh, to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices and that very soon after this he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat under a Bodhi tree. And then he goes on uh, speaking with Sakaka uh, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, and in the Buddha's words now, but such pleasant feelings that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. With my concentrated mind, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning attaining, attained to equanimity, he tells Sakaka that he systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree.
as a child, this natural state of a concentrated, undisturbed, purified mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, we could say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away or run from at that point. And yet, this natural state of an undisturbed mind certainly isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. Why? Well, we so often have a mind made up and often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we definitely know isn't true. And we often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up, a mind that in fact clings tightly to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment that we're in. It keeps us in conflict keeps us actually shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the root of our suffering and what prevents the heart, prevents the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal experience and external experience. And as I mentioned earlier in the discussion, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of ethical or virtuous conduct, the current of samadhi or samatha, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and the practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carry the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of life over to the other side the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed mind. The current of samatha, the development of concentration, is a beautiful, healing, and powerful experience in and of itself. 
And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil and untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it so that we recognize the nature of things. We recognize ultimate reality and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. Our practice is about the unification of samatha and vipassana. And as the Tibetan Buddhist teacher again, B. Allen Wallace says, the transformative power of Buddhist meditation occurs when the stability and vividness of samatha is unified with the penetrating insights of vipassana. Samatha by itself results in a temporary alleviation of the fundamental causes of suffering. And vipassana by itself provides only fleeting glimpses of reality. So, as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 25 or 2600 years after the story that I've just shared about the Buddha's life took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and very powerful years of practice, here we are, exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing gift of and clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and a diligent open-hearted interest and hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and patience. Each and all of these wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of Sila, Samadhi and Panya and without a doubt, are some of the very basic roots and basic forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. So I'd like to close the talk with uh, another Mary Oliver poem, one of the favorite poets that Buddhist teachers like to read, read her poems. And it's all tribute to her since she very recently died that we read, read her poems this evening. And this speaks to our topic, her, this particular poem speaks to our topic in her quite uh, unique and very beautiful way. Uh, and in relationship to our topic this evening, in a somewhat oblique and, and yet uh, connected and moving way. 
the poem is just a, a little bit out of season, not a whole lot out of season, but a little bit out of season here, uh, up here in the mountains in the New Mexico winter-spring transition that's going on. So uh, I encourage each of you to uh, make the shift internally to a more spring-like environment as we, uh, <laughs> as we take in Mary Oliver's poem. In this poem she calls called, calls, uh, Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree. And I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single, thr- single thrush, but, him, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that's true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit quietly for just a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.